0: This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for June 9th, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm joined by Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. And this week, we also have with us Deputy Editor Dan Longo, who ordinarily handles hematology and oncology for the Journal, but given his research background as an immunologist, he's also been our vaccine expert. The COVID-19 vaccines have been remarkably successful, and overall, they have a very good safety record but there are some adverse events that have been associated with some of the vaccines. Today, let's talk about two of them. Back in April, we discussed the fact that some vaccine recipients were developing local reactions at the vaccination site. What did we learn at that time?
1: Steve, that report described local reactions after receiving mRNA 1273, the Moderna vaccine. Of course, There were many skin reactions seen in the initial trials. Generally, it started roughly a day after the initial dose and resolved within the next couple of days. But some percentage of patients had delayed reactions that occurred beyond eight days following vaccination and persisted for four or five days. The report that you're referring to was published in April. That one gave a detailed description of these large local reactions that occurred after any of the typical reactogenic symptoms had subsided. They were often very large plaques mostly at the injection site and they resolved over the course of a couple of weeks. Most started after the first dose and often recurred after the second dose, though these reactions were generally less severe. Biopsies showed lymphocytic infiltrates consistent with a delayed type hypersensitivity reaction, which is generally a T-cell mediated reaction.
0: Last year we co-sponsored a series of webinars with the Skin of Color Society. That made the important point that dermatologic lesions can appear quite differently against the background of different skin tones. In fact, those seminars are still available online. Today, we published a case series about these delayed reactions in people of color. What did the clinicians find there?
1: This research letter looked at 55 delayed local reactions that occurred in Black, Indigenous, or people of color or BIPOC individuals these people ranged in age from 21 to 91 and had mostly received the Moderna vaccine, though a few had gotten BNT162b2, the Pfizer vaccine. Many were Asian or indigenous while fewer were Hispanic and only one of the people who was described was black. Like the original case series, most presented after their first dose of vaccine. The timing and diversity of presentations was fairly similar to that that had previously been seen in white individuals. These cases were collected as part of a voluntary reporting system, and it's difficult to know if the numbers are at all representative. There was only a single Black individual, and looking at photographs, it appears that most of the cases had lighter skin tones. It could be that Blacks are having fewer of these local reactions, though I suspect that, just as with other dermatologic manifestations of disease, these are being missed more frequently.
2: Eric, these delayed reactions appear infrequent, but they're also quite curious as to What precipitates their occurrence? Is it some prior sensitization? Not something we've fully defined yet. However, what is important is not to misconstrue it with a concerning reaction that precludes completing vaccination series, as there's no evidence that a more significant reaction occurs with second vaccination, nor that it leads to any alterations in the immunity elicited. So it's important for us to understand this reaction, to define it, to define it across populations and age groups, but not to misconstrue its meaning in terms of rollout of vaccination.
1: I think that's a very good point, Lindsay. In the initial study that we published, people who received the second vaccine, and pretty much everybody did, did fine. In fact, some of them had no reaction. And most, if they had a reaction, had a less significant reaction the second time around. And as you said, they did fine, they received symptomatic therapy, and there were no problems. Once again, in this group of people, most were able to receive second vaccine doses without any problem. So this is a bit of a curiosity, and it can be frightening for patients and their caregivers, but it's really not a significant clinical problem. Um, Dan, is it unusual to not have boosting for a delayed type hypersensitivity reaction?
3: Yes, it is unusual that the second exposure to an eliciting antigen doesn't elicit a stronger reaction. It just implies that whatever is happening is not eliciting lymphocytic memory. Although biopsies of these lesions have generally been rich in lymphocytes, for some reason, it hasn't resulted in priming of the immune system to recognize whatever the eliciting factor is the second time you're exposed to it. It's a reaction that we would just tend to call idiosyncratic. And that covers up a multitude of ignorance about what the actual pathogenesis is.
0: A more concerning complication associated with vaccination has been the incidence of thrombotic thrombocytopenia, which has been described in some recipients of both the CHADOX-1 vaccine from AstraZeneca and the AD26-CoV-2S vaccine from Johnson & Johnson. Before we talk about therapy for this syndrome, what do we know about it now?
1: The syndrome seen almost entirely in recipients of either one of the two adenoviral vector vaccines that you mentioned, Steve. We don't know the rates, though they do seem to be very low. We can make a few observations. First, the highest risk appears to be with the Chadox-1 vaccine, although it's a bit difficult to determine as the AD26-CoV-2S vaccine hasn't been used in so many places. Interestingly, there haven't been any reports of this syndrome in recipients of other adenoviral vector vaccines. Some, like the vaccine against Ebola virus, just may not have been administered to enough people to see this. But it's less clear why others, like the Russian Sputnik vaccine and one of the Chinese vaccine, haven't had issues. It may be that cases are occurring but not being reported, but it could also be due to unclear biological differences among the vaccines. So at this point, it's difficult to implicate the adenovirus itself. We also haven't seen cases among recipients of other vaccines, including the inactivated vaccines and the mRNA vaccines that are being used very widely. Almost all the cases occur after the first dose of vaccine. And there's been a suggestion that cases tend to occur in younger recipients, which has led many countries to restrict the use of these vaccines to older individuals. As we've discussed before, the syndrome consists of thrombosis, notably in cerebral veins, but in other veins and arteries as well. Coagulopathy and low platelets that can lead to hemorrhage. This is all associated with antibodies to the PF4 protein, which are similar to those seen in heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. So we know something about what happens, but still little about the underlying mechanism of this rare complication.
3: So PF4 or platelet factor four is also known as CXCL4. It's a member of a class of cytokines that are chemoattractant in their biology. It's a 70 amino acid protein that's a potent chemoattractant for neutrophils and fibroblasts. And it's really important in inflammation and wound healing. It's a component of platelet alpha granules, and its function is to bind to polyanions Such as those in the cell walls of pathogens, including peptidoglycans and tychoic acids. And as it binds to these, it calls forth these cells that mediate a host reaction and inflammation and wound healing. Rarely, pathologic antibodies specific for PF4 plus a polyanion are are produced. They can aggregate and stimulate platelet activation via the FC gamma 2A receptor and precipitate abnormal blood clotting the precise polyanion that elicits this rare manifestation in covid-19 vaccination is not yet defined but does not appear to be a component of the covid-19 virion itself heparin as the prototypical polyanion that elicits this does so rarely and very stereotypically but it's not clear what the polyanion component of the eliciting complex is in the case of the vaccine associated cases
2: along those lines dan Given that the insert is identical between the mRNA vaccines and the J&J vaccine, the insert in the AstraZeneca product is slightly different. It implies that it's more than the insert that is eliciting this aberrant immune response. Do we have any insight into the eliciting antigen or antigen complex?
3: We don't know the specificity that elicits this pathogenic antibody response. Again, it seems not to be any component of the virus. It's probably a component of the vaccine preparation. And there's intensive work going on to try to dissect what precisely is eliciting it. The fact that, by all accounts, the AstraZeneca vaccine is eliciting this reaction at about 10 to 20 times more frequent ratio than the Johnson & Johnson vaccine argues that it may be something to do with that particular product and people are looking into it. But at the moment, we don't have even an important candidate to point to.
1: The other unusual aspect of it for me, Dan, is that for heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, we know the polyanion, it's heparin. And when you take it away, it stops. This syndrome appears to last for some time, but the people who've recovered still have the antibody present. And yet they do recover their platelets eventually. So it's as if the polyanion piece of the puzzle is gone, and it's hard to imagine what kind of molecule would be present at that time scale of a few weeks. Certainly most of the components of the vaccine are long gone by that point.
3: That's true. I think that it's a remarkable puzzle. Certainly the cycle of pathogenesis that elicits this reaction initially is self-promoting. And so breaking the cycle seems to allow things to go back to some homeostatic level without reinitiating the sequence of events that produced the clots in the first place. But it remains mysterious as to how some auto-regulatory mechanism kicks in. And while the antibody is still present, it's no longer serving the platelet activation function that it did to start the syndrome.
0: These cases are quite rare, and there haven't been any randomized control trials about treatment so far. But this week, we published a small case series that suggests how treatment might be approached. What
1: happened? These are three cases of thrombosis that occurred in recipients of the CHADOX1 vaccine. These individuals were on the older side, ranging from 62 to 72 years old and all three had arterial thromboses. I should point out that I said earlier that many of the cases are in younger individuals, but of course, the vast majority of recipients have been older, so that may account for the fact that these individuals in this case series are relatively old. Two were initially treated with heparin, but after the clinical suspicion of this syndrome was raised, they were switched to either Fondaparinux or Rivaroxaban, all three also received intravenous immunoglobulin, or IVIG. After IVIG was infused, all three responded with a considerable rise in their platelet counts. And in vitro assays showed that with IVIG treatment, platelet activation was
0: reduced. Dan, what's the likely mechanism of IVIG in this syndrome?
3: Well, because the fundamental pathogenesis seems to be platelet activation, through immune complexes binding to the platelet FC receptor. Saturating that receptor with therapeutic levels of normal immunoglobulin appears capable of reversing the platelet activation, and interrupting the pathogenesis. One gram per kilogram daily for one or two days is generally sufficient. Occasionally, treatment must be given more than a day or two and supplemented with other therapeutic interventions like therapeutic plasmapheresis. Many Physicians use non-heparin anticoagulants such as rivaroxaban orally or fondaparinux parenterally to uh, facilitate interfering with the clotting scheme. But those tend to be less effective used independently of IGIV, which is the most potent intervention known so far. Early recognition of the syndrome is the key. Without it, the death rate from this syndrome can be quite high. The blood clots often occur in unusual places. And the sort of clue that's key is both timing after the first dose of the vaccine usually happens 8 to 14 days later, the syndrome begins to emerge then. And what the clue from the laboratory is decreasing platelet counts and elevated D-dimer levels that are characteristic of the widespread clotting that goes on. It's a disseminated intravascular coagulation type clinical picture.
1: I guess... Dan, I think about antibody-mediated diseases and their therapies in kind of a kinetic way. You can get rid of antibodies in a few different ways. You can get rid of the antibody-producing cells, um, the B-cells, using therapeutic antibodies. But of course, the pre-made antibody continues to circulate for a long time because the half life of antibodies in the circulation is pretty long. You can do plasmapheresis, which is a major undertaking And reduce antibody levels, although it takes a lot of plasmapheresis and a lot of plasma to really decrease them to a level, depending on the disease, where you get below some critical threshold. And you usually don't know what that critical threshold is. Or, as in this case, you can use IVIG to block binding of the antibodies, presumably to FC receptors, and have a really rapid onset of the protective effect this won't work for everything. It'll only work, of course, where FC receptors are important, but it does give you a very fast acting way. And in a syndrome like this, where hours count, um, it seems like it certainly did work. And it certainly makes sense that something like this should work.
3: Yes, the pathogenesis has to do with the fact that the variable regions of this pathogenic antibody bind to the polyanions in association with PF4, and that leaves the constant regions, the FC portions of the antibody sticking out from this polymer. And that is what binds to the FC receptors of the platelets and activates them. It may activate other cells with FC receptors as well, but what seems to be key in terms of initiating this cascade is the platelet activation, the release of more PF4 from the alpha granules, and then the propagation and kind of a cycle of antibody binding and clotting.
2: Dan and Eric, I think that one of the important things that's emerged from the identification of CVST is the value of the reporting systems that have been set up given the rapid approval of these vaccines. And I think it's quite reassuring that they work, that patterns, particularly of severe unusual side effects, are able to be observed with small numbers, and that can then lead to the investigations to understand the underlying biology in the treatment. And so I think it's really important that we continue to report any side effects of concern to the CDC and FDA reporting systems to then allow the investigation to see if there's underlying biology that makes sense, affirming some type of relationship and then potentially therapeutic intervention in a rational format.
1: It's a great point, Lindsay, although I will say that this particular adverse event was easier to identify than most because it was so very unusual. When you start giving out hundreds of millions of doses of vaccines, you see associations with everything. And if those are more common events, it's very difficult to show linkage. The CDC has raised the question of myocarditis in association with vaccines. And the data are still quite unclear about whether or not there's a real association with that syndrome and vaccines. This, on the other hand, is so peculiar that it was much easier to draw a line between the two of them. I think there's one more point, which is that there are two reassuring aspects to this. First, as you just said, Lindsay, that really difficult, life-threatening manifestations of vaccine responses can be detected. And in rapid order, people can come up with therapies that can rescue patients. Because they're able to act quickly and figure out the pathogenesis, they could make the linkage and figure out how to treat really very rapidly so that patients who do develop these rare problems have a chance. The vast majority of people aren't suffering from these, and the vaccines have proven to be very, very safe. There's been concern among the general public that these vaccines are experimental, that they haven't undergone the same sort of care in research that's gone on with other vaccines. Very hard to make that case, though, because they've been used in, as I said, hundreds of millions of people at a larger scale than most vaccines ever get used. So the safety data are pretty. Good and very convincing at this point.
2: I think it's always important to remember the risk benefit ratio, a classic element of practicing medicine. There's no medication without a side effect, but is that side effect proportionate to the disease it treats? And I think we are witnessing in several countries, the US included, dramatic decreases in COVID transmission illness, hospitalization, and death. And that is a tremendous complement to the efficacy of these vaccines. However, there are side effects and we need to be vigilant to identify the ones that are serious and to appropriately intervene. And I think that's what's going on. And I think our reporting systems enable us to identify the serious side effects. And as we understand them, we can ameliorate their consequences as well. So overall, the vaccines have really changed how we are approaching COVID. And hopefully they can
0: be utilized where they're needed most globally. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric. And thank you, Dan, for joining us today.